HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Our food is not just comfort food. It's not a simple food. It has a real heritage and history, and it's a cuisine. It's not just some smattering of uh, archetypes and stereotypes about what it means to be black. This week, we're crisscrossing the map to bring new stories about the dishes of culinary diasporas. There are many scholars who have dedicated their lives to documenting food ways of diasporas. You just heard a bit from Michael W. Twitty, whose James Beard award-winning book, The Cooking Gene, uses food to trace his ancestry from Africa to America. And you can't talk about African foodways without talking about Jessica B. Harris, who's authored 12 books on the subject and hosted the HRN podcast, My Welcome Table. She is one of, if not the foremost authority on the African diaspora. But let's start from the beginning. What exactly is a diaspora? What do we mean when we talk about it in the context of food? The term diaspora refers to a group of people with a shared heritage who have spread around the world. The term comes from the ancient Greek word for to scatter about, and that's a pretty handy image for what we're talking about in this week's episode. Scattered people carry the seeds of their culture, spreading the ingredients, flavors, and techniques of their homeland across the globe. This week, we're tracing dishes from their native countries to the United States in particular to learn more about how cuisines transform when they travel. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up, we have Michael Twitty writer, culinary historian, and chef. In 2017, he published The Cooking Gene, an examination of the fraught background of antebellum cuisine. Twitty's book focuses on the dishes of the African diaspora, tracing his own lineage alongside the birth of Southern soul food. This year, Michael Twitty sat down with Corsha Wilson on A Hungry Society to discuss his work, explaining why he looks to the past to understand the present. I go where people don't want to go. Um, And people don't really want to go to the plantation as a source, enslavement as a source, or even across the ocean, the Middle Passage, the the villages and cities where ancestors came from, are um, very dim to us. Those of us who are descendants of Africans in the Americas, especially the United States. And 
I think that there's so much beautiful material there that um, we have to rescue and recover. So that briar patch is of our history is where my home is, my real home is. And it's a very precarious place to be, especially as a cook, as a chef, as someone who works with the food because uh, I'm in this state of limbo between the ancestors and the present all the time. And it's not always a, it's not always a, uh, a happy place to be. And as a black gay man in particular, who is not Christian, who has, you know, almost completely Southern roots, I felt it was important to talk about how food um, impacts an individual's life and journey, and how if you go back to the generations, how we can trace those things. But it's important to know that backstory because we are complicated, we are rich, we are varied, and we are layered. Our food is not just comfort food, it's not a simple food, it has a real heritage and history, and it's a cuisine. It's not just some smattering of uh, archetypes and stereotypes about what it means to be black. I think that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or, or trigger them. I just want you to own your heritage so much. I want you to own, own your own source code so that we have no room for appropriation. Yeah, in, in your book, in The Cooking Gene, the specificity of your own story and putting it together, um, you even though it is your story, you kind of create this this space in which as a reader you you start to think about your own Mm -hmm. like where where do I come from who are my great 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 parents right you know um and for me personally as someone who grew up in Maryland yes um grew up in Adelphi and then Waldorf it was this kind of I had no idea of the like agricultural history of Maryland Waldorf is suburb Right. It is chain restaurants and Walmart and Target. You speak tobacco country. Right. You know, there is there's a lot of history there. And then my dad's side is from Chesapeake, Virginia. Wow. So this was, you know, in telling your story, you, you touch other people as well. Wow. So, yeah, we have a lot in, in common, and I felt that. You got reading. that bay in your blood, girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the Caribbean as well. And the Caribbean. I love it. All the... All the ports and points. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting about places like um, where you grew up and your father's from and places in the Caribbean? It's amazing how like quiet and simple and small these places seem now. But back when we were the main aspect of business, <coughs> bustling, thriving wealth, untold wealth, untold activity... It's really weird to go to a, the Southern Maryland docks and go to Charleston or go to West Africa even. And these places where all this history happened are so desolate and quiet, like ghost towns. To go to West Africa in particular um, is to experience love, isolation, a feeling of rootedness, a feeling of... Uh, Surprise, a feeling of familiarity, frustration, frustration at how colonialism has affected the mentality of people and the government, mm. all at the same time, simultaneously, and just having to deal with it, process that. It's a very intense feeling, but it's worth it, because you know B.J. Dennis was you know great gullah chef, and he was just like this trip changed his life. He said this changed my life, so we're going to Sierra Leone next year, um, me and him. 
with one part of the, with one group, and then I'm taking another group of chefs to Senegal and uh, and the Gambia. So we're going to be there for uh, ten or eleven days exploring um, the foodways there, and we really try to cook with professional chefs, cook with the women in the village. We we try to learn from our cousins, and with next trip, I really want them to also focus on telling part of our story. We've done more and more of that each trip. It's so important to realize that this is a two-way street. Um, this isn't just about us recovering. It's about them learning who we are mm. and our journeys and being hit to the knowledge that more of us would come here and be part of this if we had access and opportunity. Today, Michael Twitty continues this ever-important work. He holds dinners on former plantations throughout the South, preparing feasts akin to one served there in the 19th century. Plus, he's on a mission to connect chefs with their West African roots by traveling with them to Benin and Togo. He's created this culinary pilgrimage as a path of cultural reclamation and reconciliation. To hear more from Michael Twitty, listen to episode 65 of A Hungry Society. For our next story, H. Conley introduces us to Diaspora Co., the woman of color-owned business that's working to decolonize the spice trade in India. We all have somewhere that we call home. Whether it's where you were born, where you grew up, or where you feel most comfortable, it's a major part of who you are. But life brings us to new places, and once you've left home, everything can change. So I grew up in Mumbai, and um, when I first moved to the U.S., I was so shocked when I got an invite to be part of the Women of Color Club on campus because I had never been, you know, a person of color. I was the same color as everybody else where I lived. This is Sana Javeri Kadri discussing her time at Pomona College. I think a common joke that we had as, like, 18-year-old undergraduates who were very far from home was this concept of diasporic angst of like suddenly realizing that now that you've been removed from your home country, you're always going to feel neither here nor there. And there's always going to feel like there's a part of you that's missing. She's the founder of Diaspora Co. Diaspora Co. is a direct trade, single origin spice company um, that's dedicated to decolonizing the spice trade. The spice trade was obviously created for the profit um, of colonizers. The British colonizers never bothered learning about the spices they sold, so they categorized them by size and color. Any indigenous understanding of what spice varietals are, the flavor profiles of different spice seeds, um, that was completely lost for size and color. The British essentially squashed and limited our own understanding of what our um, spices were. I think for me, decolonizing is just a fancy word for um, how can you re-empower people and systems that were strategically disempowered by colonization. Part of that diasporic angst that she's felt is due to Americans misunderstanding and exoticizing India. First of all, many in the U.S. assume that India is poor and therefore food grown there is untouched by industrialization. In reality, the Green Revolution brought industrial agriculture to India in 1958 and it has been devastating their environment since. India has issues with pesticide contamination, lead poisoning, and it has one of the highest rates of fertilizer runoff in the world. Second, those who do know about the problems caused by industrial farming that Westerners brought to India 
think that it's the job of Westerners to prescribe solutions to save India. India has an incredibly exciting um, natural farming movement rippling across the country right now. And it's a movement led by Indians for Indians. It's led in a lot by indigenous folks. Um, it's based in really focusing on heirloom seed um, and not looking to the West for Western ideas of organic or biodynamic agriculture. Um, it's creating a system that works for India by India. Sana's been working to inform Americans about Indian culture since college. But having found a new home in the U.S., she also has to educate Indians about certain aspects of American culture. She came out as queer four years ago and has found an accepting community in the U.S., but isn't able to be fully out in India, where gay sex was only legalized in 2018. We're a long ways from, like, Bay Area-level acceptance. It definitely often feels like this part of myself that I came to terms with and gave vocabulary for in the United States will never fully be understood in India. But at the same time, the like very Indian, culturally Indian part of myself that makes so much sense in India um, is mistranslated and misunderstood here in the United States. You know, conversations about diaspora and queerness definitely didn't exist in 2016 when I started the company. Um, but I really think that this idea of diaspora has been really complicated in the past three years by um, folks who look a lot like me rising up and claiming space. Um, for me, queerness is a polit political framework. It's a framework for liberation. Um, and it's a, a method for kind of taking up space. It really signifies our values and our commitment to equity, um, and it actually has nothing to do with sexuality. Sana is talking to people from both countries she calls home, trying to garner more acceptance for people like herself around the world, while making our food more flavorful with her spices. And there is a lot more flavor to be had, considering the quality of spices available in the U.S. It's really that the stuff you're buying in the grocery store is basically dirt. Um, the FDA has no regulations around how old spices can be. So the stuff on the grocery store aisle can be up to seven years old and still on the shelf. At that point, it has no volatile oils. It has no active compounds. A lot of turmeric is actually rice flour, food coloring with like 10% turmeric added. And so it's, it's really necessary that we now start looking for harvest dates. We start asking for harvest dates. And we start treating spices like the farm-to-table product that they are. If you live in the States and care about local vegetables and organic eggs, it might be disheartening to learn that your cardamom is old enough to be in second grade. But it's okay, because now that you know, you can make a change. Check for origins, look for harvest dates, and expect more from your spices. If you'd like to hear more from Sana, Check out episode 5 of Queer the Table and episode 383 of The Food Scene. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a quick word from our sponsor. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. 
In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Our next story transports us to the Sichuan province of China, where chilies, oils, and pickles are staples of a cuisine that's ever-evolving. Sichuanese cuisine may be a new obsession for many Americans, but the author Fuchsia Dunlop has been documenting these dishes for years. She recently stopped by A Taste of the Past to discuss the new revision of her 2001 book, Land of Plenty, now titled The Food of Sichuan. The thing is that from the 90s, Sichuanese food became wildly popular in China. It was everyone's favorite cuisine, particularly with young people. So Sichuan restaurants started opening all over China. And what's happened is that, you know, the old pattern of immigration to America was sort of very Cantonese-dominated. But um, since the opening up of China in the 90s, you've got people from other parts of China, from all over China, coming here to study, to live, to do business. And they want to eat the kind of food they like and that they like at home. And that, since the 90s, has been Sichuanese food. And so I think that's really one of the really interesting things that a lot of the early Chinese restaurants in America were very much tailored to white American tastes. Now they don't have to. So you've got Chinese food on Chinese terms, particularly in big metropolitan areas, you know, like Flushing, like um, San Gabriel Valley in, in L.A., that um, there are, there's a big customer base of Chinese people. So it doesn't have to be mediated and toned down. It's real Chinese food. Um, so I think that's a case of just, you know, Chinese culinary fashions appearing in places like America with Chinese populations. And the other thing is that Sichuanese food is so stimulating and exciting. Um, it has these dazzling a variety of flavors. You know, you were saying earlier that one thing I always stress is that it's not just hot and spicy. And in Sichuan, they say, each dish has its own style and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors. So any good Chinese meal is always a balance of strong flavors and light flavors and dry things and soupy wet things, you know, a contra, you know, a harmony of opposites, if you mm. like. But in Sichuan, the highs are very electrifying because of all this zinging spice. Um, so it's a very stimulating cuisine. And I think in a crowded marketplace, um, it stands out as being very exciting still, even when competing with Japanese, Korean and Mexican and everything else that's out there. Yeah. Uh, over the years, have you seen what what major changes, have, if any, have you seen? Um, you just mentioned the markets. Have you seen an increase in the street markets? or No, no, actually much less. Because Ooh. with the modernization of Chinese cities, the whole urban landscape has changed. So when I lived in Chengdu, it was a city of old winding lanes and wooden courtyard houses. And most of that's gone now. And um, there's also been an attempt to sort of clean up the streets and get rid of street traders and markets. So there are more people shopping in supermarkets and some markets going indoors and so on. So ah, there are yeah. still street markets, but not as many as there used to be. 
Um, so that is certainly one change. Um, and also, you know, it's a very dynamic cuisine and it's always responding to outside influences. You know, the chili is the most famous example. Right. But in recent years, um, suddenly okra has been very popular and ubiquitous in Sichuan. Huh. And that was unheard of a few years uh-huh. ago. Um, so these changes are all very interesting. But one thing I do regret is that the younger generation are not learning to cook in the same way as their well, parents. Well, that, that translates to every country I can think of. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so tragic because, you know, the elder generation in Chengdu, they could all cook all these traditional dishes, make their own pickles, cure their own winter meats. And that's well, maybe really they'll have, you know, this, this whole... Uh, return to the land that we're we're seeing in um, in the West here of people wanting to grow their own food. Pickling pickling became so popular once again, and, and um, yeah, you know, the fermentation, I mean, natural fermentations. And- I have met a few young people who are going back into family businesses, making artisanal fermented tofu <laughs> and century eggs and things like that. So I hope so because it's everything such old a- is new again. It comes around. Yeah. Right? Um, Something I don't know where I picked up something either in your book or one of your um, articles that, um, and you mentioned foreign influences, the chili, and then now okra. But are there foreign influences that um, that the culture feels is a threat to the Sichuan identity? No, I mean that's one thing about Sichuan that it's such an open and welcoming culture and region and the Sichuanese always say about their own cuisine and culture that it's very baorong it's very inclusive and open-minded and tolerant mm. so um, people, it's very much part of the identity of the Sichuanese I think to be open and the other thing is that most of the population of today's Sichuan were immigrants who came like a few hundred years ago from other parts of China. So it, it, it's always been a sort of melting pot of different influences, and that's very much true today as well. And I think foreigners like me, but since then, in the decades since, um, you know, a lot of foreigners who go to Sichuan just fall in love with it and they think it's a great place and they, it's a nice place to live. And Chengdu has a particular charm and magic to its atmosphere although it's physically very different from the city that I knew in the 90s. Oh, I'm sure. So there are two major cities in uh, many different regions, right? But the two major cities are... are Well, Chengdu is the regional capital, Capital. um, which is famous for its sort of idle, pleasure-loving life, and Uh its tea houses, and of course its food. Um, And then Chongqing, which is now officially a separate municipality. Oh, but when I was living there, it was still part of Sichuan, and it's definitely still part of the, the great Sichuan cuisine. But um, Chongqing is a mountain city and a busy river port, and life there was tougher with this insufferable heat and mugginess. And so people in Chongqing eat even more chilies and Sichuan pepper than people mm. in the rest of China, and um, than, than in, in the rest of Sichuan. And it's famous, of course, for its hot pot, you know, when you have a bubbling cauldron of chilies and Sichuan pepper. If you want to hear more of this interview with Fuchsia Dunlop, tune in to episode 339 of A Taste of the Past. For our final story, Nicole Cornwell visits the Tenement Museum in New York's Lower East Side to learn about the delicious foods that German immigrants brought to America over a century ago. All right, so welcome to the Tenement Museum. We're going to be heading to 97 Orchard. If you trace a single item of food from its cultural origin to its place in American cuisine, you will uncover not just the story of a snack, but of an entire neighborhood. There's no better place to do that in New York than the Lower East Side's historic tenement museum. 
I spoke with Michelle Moon, the museum's chief programs officer and food historian, about its popular food and shop tours. She explained how the museum is teaching visitors that foods considered quintessentially American today were, in fact, brought over by immigrants in the late 19th century. The neighborhood we call the Lower East Side today, people have been living here on this land for 10,000 years and more. So we know um, that they, uh, whoever was here has been creating food culture and food culture has changed um, over all of those millennia. And so our recent changes are really just part of a much more um, ongoing story. And we do try to look at that through our whole program here at the museum. It was lived in by a mix of people, probably some of Dutch origin, English origin, other European nations, African-Americans, both free and enslaved, uh, and indigenous people all in the mix here. And one of those major groups were uh, German-Americans. Houses in the late 19th century were being constructed to fit up to 22 families in one building. So diverse cultural traditions became closely enmeshed. And one of the businesses that we found happened at 97 Orchard Street was a German beer saloon, a lager beer saloon. That's where the saloon keepers made their money, but food was free. And so food was part of the enticement. Come on down, you know, fill a plate and then enjoy an afternoon with your friends and neighbors um, drinking some styles of lager beer. Caroline Schneider was the cook at the German saloon at 97 Orchard and was called upon to create food that appealed to everyone in the bar. Among the items in the free lunch was something that now has a universal presence in New York street food, the pretzel. So our pretzel underwent that kind of evolution. It may have been that at various times Caroline was trying or experimenting with different pretzel styles. It may be that she and her husband, um, you know, I could picture them having discussions and debates like we do today of what's the proper way to make a pretzel. But in the end, the, the dominant form that became the New York street pretzel started to emerge. And that is that nice, loose, beautiful, big knot with salt on it. Um, probably a function of all of this mixing and debating and discussion and popularity that happened uh, in the food culture of a German beer saloon. The pretzel is only one example of the way food tells the story of scattered cultures, especially in neighborhoods that are perpetually transforming. So people are always curious about newcomers' food. They find it interesting. It smells good. You know, they're curious. And if they have that space where they can feel invited, they often do try. And I think it's through that slow process that it starts to make its way into becoming New York food, and then, you know, East Coast food, and then eventually American food. So I'm encouraging people to come in, look around the room, there's a ton to see. You can't To discover more immigrant stories, or plan a visit to the Tenement Museum, check out tenement.org. Special thanks to Michelle Moon and tour guide Ari Fulton for their insight and stories this week. That's our show. Next week, we're swinging through New Orleans and New York to hear about the fascinating link between jazz and soul food. Special thanks this week to H. Conley and Nicole Cornwell. Meetin' 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. This episode's lead producer was Ruby Walsh. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. 
If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hello, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.